Hey there, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Season 5 of Therapy Works. I'm Julia Samuel, author, psychotherapist, and new fine podcaster, joined by my amazing daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Join us every week as we dive into our therapy room, sharing stories from voices both known and unknown. Together, we'll navigate life's challenges. Get ready for deep conversations about real struggles. We're firm believers that sharing stories isn't just cathartic, it's profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each chat, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on lessons learned, offering insights for your own life. Our mission? Prove that even tough conversations can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or a first-timer, we're thrilled to have you with us. Each episode aims to leave you with something valuable. So no more waiting. Let's dive into this week's episode, Unpacking Life's Challenges Together. Welcome to Season 5 of Therapy Works. So, Annabelle Croft, I am thrilled that you've joined us on our Therapy Works podcast. Um, You've just stepped off the Strictly Come Dancing competition, but you're about to go on tour and you're kind of very well known as a professional tennis player and a sports presenter and the mother of three. Um, And I feel like I've got to know you over these 12 weeks of watching you on Strictly, having kind of known of you before, but I feel like you've shown us so much more of yourself than I have known. And that's been a really kind of warming, engaging experience. And And the first question I always ask anyone who comes on the podcast, what is a challenge that you are facing or have faced? Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And it's lovely to to chat to you today. Um, Well, I, what is the challenge? Um, I guess I'm in new territory. You know, I, I had no concept of grief whatsoever before this happened to our family. And, you know, you you want to say what happened? um, Well, basically on January the 31st, Last year, my husband went for a kind of a routine, what I thought was just a checkup. And we went to the appointment together and he was told that he basically didn't have very long to live. So you can imagine straight out of the bat, you know, going to this hospital and going to see a consult, a consultant. And I just, I, I have visions of being in the car park before we went in and my husband saying to me, um, I'm a bit worried about this meeting and me saying, oh, don't worry about it. You're, you know, it'll be fine. Of course, you know, lots of people go for consultations and they'll probably find a little blip and you might have to have a small operation to have something removed or whatever, but I'm sure it'd be absolutely fine. And then to find that in that meeting, literally the words that came out of the surgeon's mouth were, I'm afraid your life expectancy is not very good. And Whoa. I just literally was floored from... My whole world went into a spin from that moment. Yeah. So, um, sorry, I'm going to start crying already. I can't believe it. Oh. But, uh, but it's taken you back there, hasn't it? It's almost exactly yeah. a year ago and it's thrown you back in time of the devastation of the sort of innocence in the car park. And then that sentence, you know, you don't have very long to live. Well, I just remember looking at him and I was, the world was spinning and he was so brave. He just like took it on the chin. And I said to the consultant, I can't believe those words have just come out of your mouth. And he just said, well, some of us draw the short straw and today it was me. And I'm afraid I've had to deliver this bad news to you. And then yeah, it was, it was horrendous. It was as bad as it could possibly be. It was like the worst day of my life. And um, but also the way that it's still it was the worst broken. day of my life. Sorry, yeah, I, I didn't think I was going to get this upset so quickly. But um, uh, <sighs> you know, I think back to so many parts of that day, and you know, trying to kind of make some sense of this horrendous news, and just looking at Mel and thinking, "Wow, you, I, I should be supporting you," and he was supporting me because I was in such a state, but. 
he died about three and a half months later. And Gosh, so fast. We, it was so fast, and I'm still trying to come to terms with it. And we're still a bit traumatized by it, and we're still yeah. in shock. But um, yeah, I'm. When you asked me that first question, what's the challenge? I guess it, every day is just to try to make sense of it and and move forward positively. But it's quite hard. But also, in some ways, trying to make sense of it. There's no sense to be made of, you know, the man who you met when you were 21, who was perfectly healthy in your mind one minute before, and then was told incredibly brutally, it seems to me. I mean, the way you're told the news has a big impact. Like it was bad luck on him having to deliver the news. It's like, wow. Excuse me. It was you receiving it. He should have been thinking about yeah it was very cold and brutal is the only way to describe it and um the most extraordinary thing was that uh well he started listing off what was going to happen to mel and he said you you have you got your papers in order um you don't you know you might not have that long and mel's he said i might have to do an operation to give you a stoma bag um then we might or might not reverse it but um you know, then you'll go into chemotherapy very quickly. But really, the life expectancy is not very good. And so I was trying to absorb all of this information. But um, I remember Mel saying to him, well, if I'm going to have an operation, you know, what do you think I should be eating before the operation? You know, what kind of food should I be eating? And this gentleman said, "Um, I'm afraid I know nothing about nutrition. It's not my department. Um, But if I was you, I'd have some chocolate if I was you. You know, if you fancy some chocolate, have some, you know. and um, So dismissive. It, it was quite dismissive. And when I look back on it and I the knowledge that I now have with the cancer specialist that we then worked with, um, she said, anybody who tells anybody with cancer to have sugar, it's malpractice because anyone who knows anything about cancer and she studies it every day and she looks at the cells every day. And if you put glucose in the body, the cells divide and spread and you are spreading the cancer. And, you know, even she says it's extraordinary when people are having chemotherapy that they offer cake and biscuits and tea in the room yeah. where you're waiting to have yeah. that treatment. And, you know, that that is her field. And so it's something out there that I've sort of held on to because I think, well, because I just want to tell everybody that if they're suffering from cancer or they know someone who has cancer, just really stay away from as much sugar or carbohydrate or glucose as possible because... Um, you're literally spreading it in your body. Um, Sugar grows cancer. I, I, I feel kind of different pulls to go down. One is that sense of Mel was supporting you and you felt, felt that you should be supporting him, but also the trauma of the whole family, that it's all of you that are so devastated. And I don't know what's the thing that's sitting with you that distresses you the most when you kind of look back at that day. Um, well, there's so many things because, yeah. like you said, I've known him since I was 21. I've never known a Your life whole without adult him. life, yeah. And he was unbelievably supportive of me and my whole career. You know, he he was the best husband I could have had and... We were incredibly happy and we didn't want for much. We just um, used to walk every day or run every day, sit on the park benches and just look at the wildlife. And we always said to each other, we don't need much more than this. I'm just really happy. So I didn't you see really it coming. You loved each other. I mean, it was just a fit well, that he supported and believed and loved you and vice versa. Yeah. He told me every night when we went to bed, I'm going to miss you all night. Can't wait to see you in the morning. Oh, my goodness. And um, I just, we always talked about where we were going to live in the future, you know, the retirement. I couldn't wait till neither of us were working so that we could actually enjoy just downtime because life has been pretty hectic and fast. And so it feels like it's been cut short. Yeah. And I felt like he's been denied another 30 years maybe together. Um, sorry, I don't know if everybody like sobs their way through your podcast, but they, I hope I'm not going to sob all the way through it. 
you're by no means the only one, and I really appreciate your emotional honesty and and I feel like in some ways strictly really helped you, but it also put it to one side. And so I guess part of the task for you is, you know, grief, one of the definitions of grief is that is being robbed. And not only have you been robbed of Mel in your daily life and him saying, I love you every night and supporting you, but the future that you had every right to expect and hope for like growing old together, seeing your grandchildren, seeing your children grow and develop. And that's a huge loss, isn't it? It's so impossible to kind of get your head around of, of the future. It is because he was such a big character. I mean, he was a big man anyway. He was six foot four and a half. So he had a presence every time he came into a room. And he was growing more handsome as he got older. I he was said very handsome, him. I must say. Yeah, he was really handsome, but he had a terrific sense of humour. And he disarmed people the minute he walked into a room or whoever he met. And he appealed to every every person in any walk of life or whatever they did. He would chat to everybody. He'd make them laugh. He'd bring them down to ground level immediately and just make people see the funny side in life he didn't take it too seriously and he made me laugh every day and I miss his humor terribly yeah but I just I just never ever thought these things happened to you and I'm sure everybody says that yeah but um I really didn't and every morning I made a cup of tea for us and we used to chat every morning in bed with a cup of tea and I make my tea still but obviously I look to my right and he's not there and it's and every night I go to bed and he's not there. And it's just a bit weird. Yeah. That presence of absence is so daunting, isn't it? It's so, like, he he was, I mean, from 21, it's like everything you've known about how to live, how to wake up, have your day and go to sleep. Like, he top and tailed. Yeah. And in between did. Well, we just had and a made really you laugh. good routine. Yeah, well, we had a very compatible relationship and we grew together. When I met Mel, he didn't, he was a sailor and a yachtsman. And so we'd had a very similar sort of lifestyle in that he was like sailing all around the world, very sporty. And I was doing my tennis all around the world. And, you know, we, he traveled a lot. And yeah, we just had a similar outlook on life. And, you know, he didn't own a pair of normal shoes. And so, you know, he didn't earn very much money when I met him. He was just sort of working on boats. And I feel like everything we achieved together, we grew together and we built everything together. And then we obviously had a family together and we had lots to look forward to together. So I don't want to sound all doom and gloom. I feel like I sort of need to get a violin out at the moment. But um, but it's true, uh, though. You know, it's just, it's, it's the shock of... Um, and I'm, I now realise that lots of people go through it, and I had no concept of it. Um, but I'm, I guess we're all whoever goes through it. You learn the hard way, don't you? And you just, you can't quite believe that somebody who was a living, breathing, talking, thinking, humorous person in your life just—it feels like they just evaporated in front of you. And I keep saying in my head, "Where did you go? What happened to you? What?" The brain has clearly stopped working because you're no longer alive. And I saw him take his last breath. But where did he go? I, you know, it's hard to get your head around it. And do you have a kind of belief system of where he is? I mean, he's clearly in in your heart that he's part of you and your love for him is is so present. But do you have a spiritual belief or a, a wondering? Um just a wondering really um I'm sort of open-minded about all of that I mean he never really believed anything afterwards he always used to say oh I think once you're gone you're gone that's it but I'm just not sure I I don't know my grandmother was very into spiritualist churches and going to try and sort of seek her husband you know when he died and she used to say she'd get messages from people yeah she used to look into all of that stuff and I don't really know what to believe. You know, I've met people in my life who've proved to me that energy exists and that there's ways of mm. harnessing energy and, and proving that they can harness energy from a room. 
and that particular person sort of did used to speak to spirits and things and I was was a bit scared of all of that stuff but um but it's not to say I don't think any of it does exist or I don't really know um what to think at the moment I feel like we're still all a little bit traumatized by everything you know I speak to my children my son came back to live with me and uh you know we obviously chat a lot and every day we just say to each other where on earth do you go he used to sit in the same seat in our kitchen you know when we'd all have supper together or he'd make breakfast and we all have our specific where where we sit in the kitchen and we keep saying well you know he normally sits there it's just hard to believe that he's no longer there um so yeah we're just sort of muddling through and as you said strictly was a wonderful distraction for me and it was something so positive and wonderful to be all day you know dancing and using your body and being around lots of people who are very positive so I feel like the whole experience was amazing and you know I'm hoping that the tour will be very distracting and wonderful as well but um you know it's it's putting to as you say to one side you know a grief that comes in big waves and sometimes it comes and you just don't know when Mm. it's coming and it just comes in a great enormous wave and then you just sob and you get it out of your system and then you feel better. But yeah, I don't know how long it goes on for, I presume for the rest of my life. I don't know. I mean, I think the intensity changes. Um, and as you've been aware, you know, I guess the amount of waves that hit you changes, the intensity, it can be just as intense now but then sometimes you have a wave that's smaller and that does change over time and the purpose of it is kind of updating your database you know that question you've asked like where is he when you expect to see him in the chair is the pivotal psychological question isn't it because the task for all of you you and your three children is facing the reality of letting yourself know in a way that you finally believe, which you have not got to, that he isn't physically present. And that is the task of mourning, which is really painful. But also what helps you is what strictly enabled you is the love and connection to others. It felt to me like Johannes was, I think you actually said it was sent to you in some way because he's so funny which is like uh, Mel, but also full of love and the movement and the kind of creativity together kind of held you in a way, it felt to me. Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, I felt like Johannes was like an angel that was sent because he's dealt with a lot of grief in his life as well. Yes, he understood. Yeah, he understood and he did tell me that. And um, he's an amazing ball of light you know when he walks yeah. into a room he brings this absolutely amazing energy into a room he has the most wonderful physical presence and um very thoughtful very in tune with everything and just an amazing artist to work with you know so the whole experience was incredibly uplifting and fun and as you say his laughter just filled the room and he reminded me so many times of me just being hysterical with mel and I was, wasn't sure if I would ever be able to laugh like that again. But Johannes proved that, you know, laughter can still be part of my life. And also, I know that Mel, he would be almost having a sense of humour about what's happened. You know, uh, I know that he would have found fun in some of this darkness and made us laugh. And we've often sort of as a family kind of talked about that. Um, you know, and we have picked up his he ashes loved yet, Johannes. Actually, but- oh, haven't you? He did absolutely love Johannes when he used to watch him on the television and um, called us all to the screen to watch him dancing and used to sometimes have tears running down his face because he was very in touch with his emotions himself. And so for me to be paired with him, it was kind of bittersweet because it was sort of like reminding me of the times that Mel was watching him on the screen in our house. But then also how wonderful that I got to meet this amazing man and dance with him but then heartbreaking that they never met each other. So that was quite hard for me, thinking, gosh, you know, they would have got on so well, they would have made each other roar with laughter. Um, So, you know, it's still painful, that, because I really feel like they should have met. Yeah. Very bittersweet. Um, So it's it's almost like you can conjure Mel and imagine what he could say, but it's extremely painful that he didn't get to meet him. And 
that yeah. is yeah, feels it really is. cruel in some ways. Um, it does feel cruel because I keep I think that's the hardest thing to deal with death within the family, and particularly if it's your husband or whatever, but or anyone I suppose who's really close to you. But um it's coming to terms with the fact that they're never coming back. Because part of you keeps thinking, oh, but at some point I'll speak to them. And of course, I'm looking ahead at life and I'm 57 and I'm thinking, gosh, now for the rest of my life, I won't ever be speaking to him again. And that's just such a weird thing to try to get your head around. It's like, how weird. I've spoken to him every day for 36 years. And so I've never really been a long period of time without speaking to him. And um, now I'm thinking, gosh, I've got to go the rest of my life. And I won't experience, I can remember the humour, but I won't be experiencing it again. And um, I've just got to hang on to all the positive parts. I mean, lots of people have come forward and said to me, you have to remember and have the memories there of the happy times and the love. And of course, you try to do that. But there's an awful lot of stuff caught in the middle of the ending, which is just so depressing and gloomy and um Traumatizing is the only way to describe it. So I'm sort of trying to replace some of the trauma and the hospital part of it and the last few moments and stuff that went on at the hospital and and then try to replace it with some of the happier stuff. Yeah, I can really get that in that holding both the memories and the love and the kind of gratitude for being loved and seen and known and loving him in the way that you did and building what you built. But also the the loss is equal to the love, right? So the future without that is incredibly daunting. And it does sound like the, the trauma isn't naturally adaptive, so grief is naturally adaptive. And I'm quite curious, and this may make me sound like the consultant that spoke to you, that the, the trauma that you're talking about of his dying in the hospital it would probably give you flashes that would interfere with your capacity to grieve adaptively. And yet, interestingly, dance is a very good treatment for trauma. So ah. the connection of your mind and body, it sends neurotransmitters around your system that is naturally regulating and helps with trauma. So yoga... Really? Yoga, dance, and EMDR are the three best treatments for trauma. So wow. I, it feels like there is still trauma there because you, ha I can see it as you were speaking. And yet maybe dancing was also helpful. Well, I, I definitely think the dancing was helpful because I could just feel a bit freer. And there were times when I was getting grief out, but then I could just refocus and... Uh, and I felt like I was just getting more and more free as I went on through the the 12 weeks that we danced together. But um, you did open. I, I see definitely that. think. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like that. It felt like there'd been some shifting and something positive out of all of this darkness. But um, I think we are a little bit traumatized by the hospital and, you know, how everything ended and this particular woman. I, I don't know what her title was. I don't know her name, but she was the one who, when we went into hospital, delivered terrible news. Because when we were going to hospital that day and he went off in an ambulance and you look back at that whole last day, I thought he was going into hospital to get help and some treatment. And I was quite relieved because it was getting quite bad at home. And, um, and I just didn't think I could cope much more. And I thought, oh, thank goodness he's going in to get treatment and help and he'll be coming home later or so you maybe no tomorrow. Idea. Not a clue. No, because um I didn't realise that he was actually dying of sepsis, even though his body was riddled with cancer. Uh, he had a perforation in his colon and the poison was killing him. And uh oh, he couldn't really walk anymore and his whole body was sort of grinding to a halt. And he was so struggling to breathe. And um, it was just awful to witness. And Terrible. we were a bit naive, you know, watching it because we didn't realise until he actually said to me, Annabelle, I need assistance. I can't really breathe. Oh. And we got the ambulance there and he went into hospital. And we just were so relieved that he was going to get help, the help. and thinking that he was coming home. And uh, anyway, this dreadful woman who I can only describe as a psychopath, um, 
came to deliver the news with almost glee. What? And all of us could sense it. And even our wonderful Isabella, who was his cancer specialist, she was there and witnessed it as well. And this woman came to say, you know, I, you know, he's basically he's got an 80% chance of not surviving any particular operation that we might do. And she was the person to deliver the news between the the surgeons and the family. She was sort of called a surgeon's something or other. Yeah, she delivered that. Yeah. And, uh, and then I said to her, please, can you keep your voice down? I don't want him to hear what you're saying because he was lying there and um, she was saying, no, he has to hear this information. He's going to die. Gosh, and he's got cancer all over his body. And she had this tone of voice that was very authoritative, but it was almost like, I don't care what you think about whether he hears this or not. He's the patient and he needs to hear this information. And I thought, I didn't want him to hear that information because yeah. it was brutal. Yeah. And then she came back for a bit more and she said, um, oh, and by the way, um, you know, if he has a heart attack, we're not reviving him, okay? And he, had, having been drifting in and out of consciousness, perked up and said, I don't like the sound of a DNR, which I was surprised he even knew what that what term was. was. But yeah. um, And I said to her, please, I don't want him to hear. You know, I don't like the sound of that. That sounds awful. And again, she just said, listen to me. He's got cancer all over his body. If he has a heart attack, we're not reviving him. And I think that's the bit that I'm most traumatized by yeah. is that... In his last day of life, he was hearing this woman almost gleeful and telling him he was going to die. And I can only describe her manner and attitude as somebody who was getting enjoyment from what she said, because I can't imagine how you could possibly deliver that news the way that she did and feel good about yourself. But um, we all witnessed it and I'm not imagining it. No. Um, and then I've had thousands of people write to me after... I spoke about it in a, an article which actually a donation was made to the cancer charity and thousands of people were sort of coming forward saying that they had had similar experiences, which is quite shocking. But I uh, anyway, I think that's what gives us the most trauma as a family is that, that that was how, you know, he heard that information. And I just don't think that was right. And I don't know why that woman is in the care sector when you can be that uncaring and un, unkind to somebody when they're dying. Yeah. I kind of feel a shock in my body. And I'm wondering what's your body feeling as you remember? Does the trauma feel stuck in your body as you're telling um, me what's happening? Well, my body starts to shake a bit, but yeah. um, I've relived it so many times. Um, and I visualize him on the bed hearing it and how he was reacting to it. And I'm just upset that he had to hear it. Yeah. It, it's awful. It is awful that he had to hear it. I can't imagine how you could ever say to someone, I'm not going to revive you if you have a heart attack. Uh, I mean, thank goodness he didn't have a heart attack because then that would have been even more traumatising to witness that. But yeah. it's like, how, so how, could you, how could you enjoy saying to somebody when they're dying? Why would, you, why would you say that? What would you like to say to her? I'd just like to understand why she's doing the job that she's doing and how she cannot think about the care of that person and have some kind of empathy for people on their deathbed. But I imagine that she's dealing with it so often she's become desensitised to it is the only way I can look at it because I, I can't imagine how you wouldn't want to comfort somebody when you know they're dying, as she did, but why you're enjoying telling them. I just think it's slightly twisted and... Um, it's the pleasure it's, part of it that makes me feel physically sick. That, that she, well, it was the, the tone of her of voice. Power. Yeah. yeah. It felt like she was enjoying the power over what was happening. And, um, You're all so vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I suppose my trauma comes from being in that hospital room and sometimes I lie in bed thinking about it. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure when those memories will go away. So, you know, I try to think of all the happy, happy times, but 
the ending of how he was listening to that information on the bed. And he started to list lots of things for the family, which is when I suddenly realised that he knew he was going to die, where he hadn't done that before. So he was sort of thinks, I mean, some of it was quite amusing. He'd say things like, Charlie, the van wheel needs changing because he knew it was going flat and he didn't want Charlie to drive the van with a flat wheel. And, oh, still and loving was, you so much. Yeah, he was. And then he was talking to all the children's partners and saying he was sorry that he couldn't be there, went to walk, you know, the, my two daughters down the aisle or couldn't be there, you know, when they eventually hopefully get married one day. And he was just listing all this stuff, pensions, and it all came out in one go which again was quite traumatising because it's like, gosh, I now know that you know you're going to die. This is the first time that I know that mm. and that I know that you know that. You hadn't talked so, about that uh, at all before. No, never never mentioned it. He'd been very positive and uh, that was upsetting to know that he suddenly knew he was going to die. Yeah, And so, of course, we relive that quite a bit as well. I think him knowing he's going to die and being able to say the things that he said to all of you feels quite important in that he could continue to love you and parent his children knowing that he was dying and that in some way he probably knew before, it's likely he knew before, but it being out in the open for all of you so that you were actually talking about it might be helpful. What is unforgivable and unbearable is the manner and the brutality and the the pleasure that with with which that he was told or the way that it came about. I think you could have had a, a tender conversation, a loving conversation that actually wouldn't have traumatized all of you. Because what he said to you feels important. And actually I was thinking you know, it might be nice to write all that down, you know, that what he'd said and because it's a part of his legacy and that you do remember and you will remember, but having it written down might be really lovely for all, all of you as a family to write down what you remember him saying. Yeah, that's a really good point. I never thought about that, but uh, maybe I'll suggest it to all of the family because we have very clear memories of that time, obviously. Um so it would be quite nice to write that all down, actually, even though, you know, a few several months have passed now, but it's very clear in our heads. Yeah, yeah, it's like a live video. I can see it's like you're there. And I was wondering the other thing as a, as a family you might do that might help with that day is write to him about what you all feel about that day. Write him a letter together that you can all contribute to about what you feel upset about, what you want him to know, what you felt, um, so that you you kind of express it, because it feels like it's got stuck in your body in some way, that you feel so protective of him and so furious, legitimately, um, that you want to be able to say something more to him. Well, I think, yeah, there is part of us that have discussed the fact that it was all happening so fast that we felt like we never had a chance to talk to him yeah. because he had a chance to list all those things. And then suddenly he was drifting and then he was gone. And we never discussed death together and we never discussed anything, actually. We didn't realise it was going to happen that way. So fast. No, and it almost, I said to my son yesterday, it felt like he had a car accident or something because yeah. he was just here and then gone. And it all happened so quickly, but it was just a horrible way to to see somebody go, I think. But I'm horrible. sure everybody says that. Yeah, I, I mean, everybody must have awful memories of every different way that somebody must go, but that's never a good way, is there? Well, I think, I mean... How somebody dies has a big impact on your grieving and yours sounds very traumatic. And I, I think it's true that you can never be prepared for someone's death, even if you've had all the conversations and you've talked about dying. I think at some level it always feels a huge shock. But it does feel 
intensified and and made more complex by what happened with you two and particularly by that person it doesn't sound like either of you kind of fully realized the implications of what you'd first been told in January that you went for home right yeah we did we uh we worked with uh this amazing scientist, Isabella, who works uh, every day in the cancer field and she studies it. And she has just uh, published some papers that she's first, I think she's the first scientist to do it, publishing uh, on metabolic therapy. It's ketogenic metabolic therapy. And um, on the last scans on his body before he died, that day before he died, it showed that the cancer had pulled back from 97% across his whole liver. I mean, he had colon cancer, but it had spread across his liver. And she said when she first saw the scans in January, she'd never seen a patient with that much cancer. She couldn't believe that he was even, he was still alive. He had so much cancer riddled across his whole body. But he went on a very (coughs) severe um, sort of ketogenic diet. And she's worked with many people and had huge successes. And the cancer had pulled back to 70% across the liver. So it was working. But what we couldn't anticipate was the colon had perforated. And the sepsis. And um, so it was actually sepsis that, that got him. But um, And we'd gone on this, uh, what I call the fateful flight. We'd taken a flight to Portugal where he was running our tennis academy out there. And uh, I think the flight may have perforated it. We don't know. But something happened on that flight where when he got off the flight, his feet were all blown up and... Uh, you know, he definitely wasn't well and the pains which had completely disappeared suddenly came back. And uh, But anyway, what I, I suppose what I was trying to say was that her work was, we believe, working and she gave him so much positivity. Yeah. And so in contrast to this dreadful woman at the hospital, um, you know, Isabella had always been incredibly positive and he always had a positive outlook on the future he always thought he was going to beat it mm. and she always said i never tell patients that there's nothing i can do or there's nothing that they can do because you know you never know the mind yeah. you never know how somebody's going to react to anything so you always Unique. give them hope yeah and so i'm very grateful that she gave him hope in his last three months and he was very very hopeful and very positive so i imagine that's why when we went to the hospital he himself wouldn't have thought that he was going to die that day but as I said, that woman really enjoyed telling him that he was. <laughs> so I'm so sorry. Oh, it's horrific. <laughs> it is horrific. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and what I get from what you're saying is, is that the horror is still in you. And also Isabella and the hope that she gave you is still in you. And that 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 is an incredibly important kind of guide for you is that having hope, so having hope while he was alive, but again, having hope now, looking into your unknown future is an incredibly important part of you, how you develop hope, how you both have a plan for it, a plan B, and the belief that you can make things happen. And I saw that in your process during Strictly, is that you have a lot of you have a lot of fear, it seemed to me, but you have a lot of courage to withstand the fear. So you have this capacity to endure great difficulty and overcome it. Yeah, that's a really good, very good way of assessing it, actually, because I was quite terrified um, doing the dancing because it's quite terrifying doing terrifying. something that's out of out of your comfort zone and putting yourself in a position where you can make a fool of yourself or you might get it wrong and you're in front of about nine million people on a live on a Saturday night but I suppose after what we've been through um I just sort of thought well what could be worse than what we've been through so nothing really will live up to that so actually put aside your ego and just have a go and just go for it even though my heart was racing and it was absolutely pounding but um you know, I kind of enjoyed the challenge and and th- there was hope in it. And I thought, actually, there's joy and it just can prove that you can get out of bed and go and find fun in life again and be around people and and live, you know, not just sort of completely sink into hopelessness. Um, and I think that's what life has got to be about now is just to sort of find a way to enjoy and make the most of 
the time that we all have here on the planet and, you know, the friends that I've got in my life have been so incredible. But I just need to find a way to just occupy myself and get to the end is how I say it, you know, get to the end and enjoy it positively as much as I can. And I think um, with Isabella's work, I feel like um, she's doing such amazing work that maybe I can, you know, help her in some way to um, get her work recognised even more or, you know, more people to, to see the papers that she's going to be, well, she's published some already, which mm. is, is the first of its kind. And I think... We must put the link on the show notes to her papers. Oh, I will. Yeah, yeah. well, thank you. Well, I feel like she's an amazing scientist. She's an incredible woman and she's a really special human being in terms of her own empathy and thoughtfulness and kindness. She's she's the opposite, but she's a very special person. And, you know, I think the work that she's doing is pioneering and it could change the way that cancer is treated and the way that it goes forward. And I feel like... Maybe this in in Mel's legacy is what might happen, is that we can work with her and help her and help her get her work recognised even more is how I feel. So I feel like I will throw myself at that as well. And that, I mean, that is, it's so interesting how you naturally, instinctively are finding the, the ways of being that are naturally supportive in that you're finding meaning from Mel's death in the ketogenic research and the met- metabolic research. Um, and I've heard quite a lot about that. I listened to a, a Wrong and Chatterjee podcast with the man who does the research too about diet. And it's very, it was very interesting, very um, convincing, very persuasive. But also that you know that even though you feel like, or you have like a huge part of you has died in that Mel has died, you're choosing life, you're choosing to have life in your life and to go for finding joy, finding glimmers, finding people, finding connection, movement in your body, dancing, which is the thing that will enable you to survive and actually live till you get to the end. And not, you know, some people, they live, but there's no life in their life, whereas you want to live and have life in your life whilst you still grieve and miss Mel. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's so interesting. I mean, when you say it like that, I suppose that's absolutely true. I feel like I've always been somebody that kind of you know had a lot of energy. Used to apparently exhaust all my school friends, according to my mum, because they couldn't keep up with my energy. So I have to have an outlet for that energy. But um, yeah, I do feel like I the only way to go forward now is to get out of bed every day, make sure I you know, put some makeup on, putting clothes on, go and look how you would try to look your best for the day and you go do. and attack it with with some, well, thank you. I just feel like, um, you know, I don't want to sink and just absolutely fall apart as a crushed person, even though sometimes inside I feel like that. Yeah. Um, I feel like I need to just keep going forward and making the most of what is out there and you know i do have some wonderful wonderful friends and they have really kept me going i don't know what i would have done without them and obviously my children have been absolutely incredible as well and i sometimes forget that even though i'm grieving i need to keep reminding myself that they are too they really are that they've lost their dad Mm. and you know even though mel was my partner and my life partner you know he was their dad so I have to keep reminding myself that they're also suffering as much and we talk together as a family but I think we're all trying to bolster each other and find lots of happy memories we talk about lots of things we talk we don't not want to talk about him and so whenever uh, yeah I'm sure you've heard about this but when friends come to the door or they come around a lot of people if you meet people that people are scared to talk about don't they whereas Never afraid to talk about Mel. No, you want to talk about him. I never know I burst into tears, but I'm mm. happy to talk about him because I just think that would be awful if people felt too scared that they couldn't bring up his name. So I tend to bring up his name all the time and so Lovely. make it easier for people. And also I don't want to not talk about him. No, bringing his memory alive and having yeah. ways of connecting to him, although he's died, is incredibly important. And I can hear that you really recognise that although your relationship was different to Mel, the love your kids had for him is huge and that they're grieving too. And But it sounds like you have, with Melly, you made a family that pulled together 
when terrible things happen. And a lot of families pull apart. And so that is something that you and he have created together, which is something you, I hope you really recognise and are really proud of. Yes, I think so. I think um, you're spot on. I think that as a family, we were always close, but it's definitely brought us even closer. It feels like we're this really tight little ball that needs each other and we just want to spend more time together and do family things together. And so, um, yeah, we it's... It's a really important support network, isn't it, for each other, I think. Um, so I can't quite imagine without all of the, our kids, you know, the kids and us all together, I don't know quite how we would have survived it, actually, to be honest. If we were a dysfunctional family, I think that would be very, very hard. So it's made us even closer than we were before. And that, and that love and connection together. And, you know, children learn how to manage by what you model as parents. So you've modelled having hope, making meaning, kind of being positive, doing the things to have life in your life, allow yourself to feel the pain, express the pain, remember Mal. So it's it feels so psychologically painful and hard, but also kind of natural and holistic and loving and it gives me a lot of hope for all of you. I kind of can see that you will, that you are kind of managing it, if that's the right word. I'm not sure if that's the right yeah. word. Living with it, accommodating it. I hope so. I mean, uh, one thing we haven't done is, I mentioned it earlier, but we haven't picked up his ashes yet. And it's just one of these things. I don't know what other people say when they're grieving or whatever, but it's just this horrific thought of, Mel being in an, an urn, you know, and I just at the moment, none of us can face picking them up. But then we started having a conversation about it the other day and saying he would be joking about it, about the fact that he's in an urn somewhere and that, you know, if we're going to say, come and pick me up and stick me somewhere or <laughs> I don't know, I think he would find, find it all quite amusing, actually. And he would make us laugh and he would have found a funny Side way of looking at it. But and at some point, we do need to just get over this hurdle of this awful thought that he's in an urn somewhere I just can't actually get my head around it I don't know what other people say I mean some people wear some of the ashes around their neck in a, a locket Necklace, or something and yeah. I I can't even imagine doing that because it just feels like I don't know I mean everyone's different aren't they but I just I can't bear the thought of him like that no I don't want to visualize him as ashes and no. so I'm finding it very hard to even contemplate picking up this urn at some point but I know it's gone on for quite a long time and maybe it's really unfair to leave him down at the undertaker's and we should go and sort it out but um yes I have no idea what other people say about it but or whether other people have left it as long as I have I've no idea I I mean I I could really get that given the suddenness and the unexpectedness of his death and then the funeral that you had to have in some ways collecting his ashes and how what you're going to do, making decisions about what you're going to do with the ashes is the last kind of physical act that you're going to do in relation to his physical body. And so there isn't a right or a wrong. Everyone does it in their own time. There are people who've left ashes for 18 months, two years before they've collected them. So the, my kind of, as a way to end, if this is a way to end, is that to give yourself compassion and, and space and time to do it when you're ready because yeah. this is your something that you can choose. And so do it in what feels like the right time when you can and don't put yourself under pressure. And there may be a point where you feel like I've just got to go and do it and, you'll, and yeah. that, that will emerge. And then mm. together as a family, you can decide what you do with the ashes. And it could be that you have them at home for a long time before you do anything with them or just keep them at home. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting here because, I, I've, as I said before, at the start, you know, I've never had any concept of any of this and suddenly having to face all these decisions and it's just awful. It's awful. But at one point, you know, because Mel was a sailor, um, the best man at our wedding, he was sort of saying, oh, what about, um, you know, we scatter them in the sea? And I thought, oh, that sounds quite nice. I think Mel would have liked that. But then he loved Richmond Parks. And then we thought, well, maybe we go to the parks. I know you're allowed to do that if you sort of organise it with them. And then the kids were saying, well, what about a bit here and a bit there and a bit somewhere else? And I was like, but oh, you I can do like that. I mean, well, you I'm may sure. not like the idea of it, but you it doesn't have yeah. to be all of the ashes in one place. 
No. I, but then I thought, well, what a weird concept that is. You're splitting it all up and in different places. I thought, well, I don't know if I like the idea of that. So, oh, all of it is is to be decided, but all awful. It's grim. But I know that Mel would have laughed about it and found something highly amusing to entertain us all with ideas about it. <laughs> but I would listen to that and listen to yourself and listen, let yourself have one thought, have another thought, change your mind, make up your mind, feel Mel with you, ad- advising you, kind of, and then it, it, your decision will emerge. And it is it is painful, extremely painful, because it is a, yeah. the absolute kind of ultimate reality when you pick up his ashes that you know in a way that you can't not know that he's died. No, I know. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no way around it. I just know I've got to pick up the phone and call them at some point and go down there. And then I'm sort of already visualising the transportation of that. Whereas, and it reminds me of when Mel and I first had our first baby, Amber, and being so careful the way we drove the car at about 10 miles an hour with her in the sort of baby seat at the back of the car and thinking this was our first baby. And, you know, it sort of has this vision of, oh, my goodness, you know, going and picking up his ashes and how on earth do you transport them? And it's just a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. The whole thing. But I know I do need to get over that at some point. Maybe the first step is finding out what you can do, because it feels like the ignorance also brings more fear. So if you ring the funeral directors or wherever he, he is and find out what do people do, how do you transport the ashes, what's a way to protect yeah. them, what's, you know, yeah. get information because that will help you make your decision. Yeah, I know. It's all just, I mean, I can't even believe we're having to this, it's, this honestly, conversation. It's like talking about, it's like talking about some somebody else having this conversation. I can't even believe it's real. Do you know what I mean? It's, no, it's just surreal. Bizarre. It's surreal. It really is. I was interested in what you said Um about dancing you mentioned something else you said yoga dance eye movement desensitization reprocessing emdr wow oh i've never heard of that before i might have to look that up (laughs) you and i can talk more about that um yeah i'd love to (laughs) but i just want to say thank you so much for being so open and so honest i know it will help lots of people who are going through the same thing or have been through a similar thing and i really appreciate all of you and this incredibly kind of tender and precious conversation. So thank you so much. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm sorry that I blubbed my way through the whole thing. So I hope it's, um, I wouldn't that be people sorry. can hear through all my tears, but thank you for, for talking to me. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. It's been really lovely. Thank you. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. It was incredibly moving, and she was so open. I wonder what the things that most strongly struck you she was so generous wasn't she in sharing the sort of real emotional depth of her loss and you know I could feel listening to it the sort of shock in my body that she felt in hers also sort of reminded me I guess that you know when we say and you say often mum that sort of unexpected death out of nowhere, it's often more complicated to grieve than others. They had been given a terminal diagnosis, but it happening in such an unexpected way, much more suddenly, does have a very similar effect to having, you know, someone who might have died in an accident. And part of that, isn't it, is that you don't get to make sense of the death with your partner. That's one of the major losses of this way of losing someone, is if you're not expecting it to happen at that point and you haven't started those conversations. It sort of means all the grieving has to be done on your own and all the sense-making of what has happened is then done on your own rather than than, than being able to do that together before the death. Exactly. I was thinking that and I was also thinking it's like you've started a sentence and it's like an unfinished sentence. And that happened both when she was given the news where she expected everything to be okay and his death. So there's a double whammy on that and no opportunities to really, I'm sure they said, I love you every day, but it just feels so surreal, doesn't it, to her 
and to us listening. Yeah, and also her experience of healthcare was just so appalling. Um, I, you know, Mum, you know more than anyone, but the impact on the people receiving news on the outcomes of your bereavement and grief, like there's a lot of research about how actually how you're told about something, how you're supported in that moment, has quite a significant impact on the grieving process. And, you know, empathy is, is such a, a basic skill. And I know doctors are sort of often in kind of survival mode and they have to turn off for whatever reason. But when it has such a big impact on people's lives, it does feel very important important you know for doctors to get the support that they need so that then they can deliver news in a way that is more empathic you know as therapists we're really lucky that we have supervision really built into the profession right so you have somebody that you can talk about to help you process the things that are going on and help you see things differently and you know like and learn from your mistakes and there's really very few other professions that have supervision in the sense that therapists have supervision, which is really just about your own experience as opposed to thinking about sort of practical outcomes. I remember our going to visit an oncologist with our nanny when she was very ill with cancer. And in the oncology appointment, our nanny asked, am I going to die? And the way that this oncologist answered was just such a beautiful example of how to practice empathy. She was completely mm. honest, but she was so gentle and kind that it really felt this is how you deliver something that's mm. going to always be unbearable to hear. Systems make such a difference, don't they, about whether the systems that you're in, whether or not they support you to be the best version of what you can be or not. And I think the NHS at the moment is really struggling with that. And it has these kind of unrecognized cascades of distress, don't they, when, when systems are not working so well. When she talked about both the times that she was broken the news, first of all, the, the consultant, you know, who said he didn't know about nutrition and was incredibly kind of dismissive and unempathic, but then much worse, what, who she felt, the woman, that the psychopath, it's stuck in her system. And that would block her capacity to process trauma because she's hooked on the message and it's like a live video that all of us have had those experiences when someone has kind of assaulted us with the way they've treated us. And it made what was already utterly devastating so much worse. And I completely agree with both of you about supervision. You know, I used to teach Breaking Bad News at St. Mary's and Part of my teaching was that they would have what I call the debrief every time they were breaking bad news or somebody died. The research shows that doctors feel their capacity to break bad news is received much better than the people that receive it. So they think they're better at it <laughs> Classic. than their patients. <laughs> but they don't get feedback. So we ask our patients to give us feedback. We have reviews and then we have supervision. And I have supervision. I had it like last week when there was a whole gap of my understanding that I hadn't realized I didn't have until my supervisor said, have you thought of doing this? And it was a basic thing. And I went, no, <laughs> I haven't. It does feel like for Annabelle, something was stolen from her, like the opportunity yes. to have that goodbye, that moment of like a good death really was stolen from her, obviously not just in the circumstance of it being so sudden, but also in this woman doing what she didn't want and what she felt was not right for him. And I imagine that you just kind of get replay that over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think doing Strictly was such a big distraction. There were moments or times of the day that it blocked her, but it felt to me like it woke her in the night. It haunted her. And she's missing the love of her life, who's been the love of her life since she was a teenager. It was so sad, that idea of them missing their future and that they'd sit on a bench and say, we don't need much, we just need each other and we need this. And that he said, I'll miss you every night. I thought, oh my God. No, I that's, I, that's, I, def, I, de I definitely <laughs> cried listening to it. One of the reasons, I guess, why it feels such a generous offering, and, and I hope 
helpful to people listening. It's, it's such a powerful just reminder of that the process of grief and mourning is so hard <laughs> coming into reality. Mm. If you haven't had a major loss in your life, you can forget what a journey somebody is on. That fact to process the idea that you cannot speak, touch, or hear that person ever again in your lifetime is a mammoth transition and loss. And it has so many layers to it from waking up in the morning and having her cup of tea on her own to all your future you planned and all the memories of your past and all the what ifs. And it also made me think about sort of moving away from Annabelle's story in particular, something about this thing in life, which happens obviously a lot in the kind of circumstances Annabelle was in, but also in life generally, of how to balance holding hope, hoping for the best, but also being able to tolerate reality so that you can plan or think about what could happen. I know that you and dad, mum, have talked about death and dying and what would happen and you could go marry this person, you know, like in in a jokey way, but also in a serious way, both aspects. And I was thinking, oh, I don't think I've done that with my husband. I'm listening to an audiobook at the moment by Thich Nhan, a Buddhist monk, it's called something like the art of Zen and saving the planet. It's not quite it, but something like that. And in mm-hmm. it, he's talking about the difference between being in a state of anxiety and fear and therefore trying to anticipate and control the future, which is more a kind of fearful worry state of mind versus using mindfulness or supporting yourself to be really present and from that place of presence planning when you have a diagnosis like a terminal diagnosis how do you hold the hope and do things that are sort of outside the realm of like really typical medicine like acupuncture or nutritionists and really keep positive while also having those difficult conversations to make sure that you can say the things that you would have wanted to say before somebody dies and like you say so the planning of what you would want to happen to your body and all of those things. So I thought you were talking about that. I, th- I think I was. So that's what I was thinking about. She was. And then I went off into my little Zen Buddhist moment. <laughs> yes. I definitely think about death much more since I've had children than I did before I had children because it just feels it would be so much worse if I died now. So I think about it loads more. I'm more anxious about it. And yet I haven't updated my will since I've had children. So I'm obviously also in like some sort of denial about the fact that I could die. Mm, me too. I haven't updated my will either. I'd love people listening to kind of reflect on that for themselves. Like how much do they kind of let the idea of their dying or the uh, important member of their family die and then they just let it fall out of their brain and don't take any action on it? Um, or do they completely deny it? Or do they actually take action and do organize their will or like I have a living will. And I sat next to somebody at dinner this week who has written his funeral. And I have actually had thoughts of my funeral often. I've often thought about my funeral, but I haven't written much down. You know, I think we do this thing of daring to look at brutal things we don't want to look at and turning away And I don't think we can immerse ourselves in both. So I do think it's with your question, Sophie, about hope and the Zen mindfulness. I think there's this thing of holding both of that you have to have hope and aim for hope. And you have to be able to turn to if your plan A and plan B don't work so that you can support yourself of hope not succeeding. The reason I haven't done the will is because it's so much more unbearable to think about the possibility of happening so somehow the more anxious you are about anything really like death is obviously a really big one the more you're like I'm just just gonna close those curtains and not do the things that you actually can do that you know you should do that are relatively simple to do I think sometimes it's actually like the two go together you can worry more about death but actually do nothing about it whereas if you actually sit and tolerate and be with it as an awareness then from that can come real concrete action. Like, okay, if I could sit down and really contemplate the dying and leaving my children behind, 
and then think seriously about my will that comes from a much more connected thoughtful place than like the multiple thoughts that I also have much more of like oh I better die or they do die or any of the you know those sort of fears we need to come to the end so I just really want to value and appreciate Annabelle for her openness and her honesty and I'm sure it'll be invaluable to everybody listening. And if you want to watch the interview, it's now on my YouTube channel. I have a newsletter on Substack, so do please subscribe. And of course, if this episode you think could be helpful to anybody you know, do please share it. And to help others find us, we really appreciate it when you rate and subscribe. Thank you. Let me tell you about a podcast I love, and honestly, I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach, and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week, she speaks to an incredible expert, such as Gabor Maté, Dr. Julie Smith, and me, to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Just search Mother Kind.